Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I thought he was kidding uh, when he had my name wrong there, but I'll forgive him. We'll get over it. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, As Dan said, I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at UW-Milwaukee. I think you heard from Danny Heinemann, who's at Madison, maybe a couple months ago. Is that that accurate? And so uh, we basically have the same job, just in different locations. Uh, this, the RUF is the college arm of this denomination, which sends seminary-trained, ordained pastors to minister to college students on campus. And so this is my fifth, finishing up my fifth year doing it now at UW-Milwaukee, and it's been sweet, it's been a joy, it's been hard. Uh, God has done many wonderful things in bringing people to saving faith in Christ and growing many others, and... Uh, I get to do fun things like every Friday at 3 o'clock, I go to the gym and play volleyball with students. Came home uh, on Friday and noticed my back was a little sore and could not get out of bed on Saturday morning. So I'm starting to feel my age a little bit. Uh, but Advil has been my friend as well. So um, yeah, it's, it's a joy. It's a privilege. If any of you do have more questions or would like to talk more um, with me about RUF, please just find me or send me an email or something. Uh, I want to say thank you to this church. This church supports us and gives to our ministry so I can be on campus. So thank you, uh, all of you, for giving and supporting RUF. And also thank you to the individuals here who also support uh, this ministry. It's a privilege for me this morning to get to speak from God's Word to you. I know you've been going through this series in Romans. And I've been given the the great blessing of preaching on Romans chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 17, it looks like. Uh, I wasn't sure if it was 12 or 17. Uh, So I'm going to read the passage for us. You can follow along, then I'll pray, and we'll get started. This is Romans 11, starting in in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, 
how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for your word to us this morning. Give us ears to hear from you and eyes to see you. Give us clarity of mind and please send your Holy Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Allow all the cares and concerns of this world and of our lives to just be set aside for a moment so that we could hear your voice. We could could be comforted by your mercy and your gospel. Please be with us and work in and among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who has seen the movie or read the book, Unbroken? Some of you? Hands, hands. The the movie came out in 2014. The book in 2010 was written by Laura Hillenbrand, which tells the story of a U.S. Olympian and Army officer, Louis Zemperini. Zemperini grew up in Torrance, California, was a troublemaker, was known to steal to drink liquor, and to smoke cigarettes. One day, Louis was caught looking up a woman's skirt from under the bleachers at a track meet, and when he was caught, he ran away so fast that his brother took note of how fast he ran and started training him to run. He took off with his newfound love for running, and he excelled. He ended up qualifying for the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin, He came in eighth while setting a record for the fastest speed in the final lap of the 5,000-meter race. Fast-forwarding a little bit, Louis was also then a bombardier in a B-24 Liberator during the 1934 April bombing mission against the Japanese-held island of Nauru. On a search-and-rescue flight in a B-24, not the one he normally used to fly in, but one that was actually kind of junked but then brought back to life just to use for search and rescues, well, big surprise, had engine failures and went down in the ocean. Three people survived, Louie, Mac, and Phil, and they lived on two inflatable rafts. After three days, a search and rescue plane flew over. They were waving, of course, and could not get its attention. Twenty-four days later, 
Another plane flew over. They did get its attention, but if you remember the story, this was a Japanese plane that tried to shoot down the rafts, put many holes in the rafts. None of them died. They survived the shooting, but now they're living on, on half-inflated rafts, and six days later, Mac died. For the next 13 days, they fended off sharks and birds and storms. Eventually, they were captured by Japanese sailors, taken as POWs where they were held in a dungeon on a small island after 47 days at sea. Looking back over the early details of Louis's life, how he was a troublemaker, a track star, an Olympian, an army bombardier, you would say this. At the very least, this is a crazy story. You couldn't even make up stories like this. Louis would have never, ever imagined that his life would have turned the way it did. We'll circle back to this in a bit, but this is what we can gain from Louis's story and also from our passage this morning. God moves in mysterious ways, so we should always give thanks. That's what our passage boils down to, I think, as I studied it. God moves in mysterious ways, so we should always give thanks. Isn't this true in your life as well? If you think about it for a moment, if you were to look back over the years, you might say, I I had no idea that God would have brought me to where I am this morning, sitting in this chair right here. It was unexpected. It was mysterious. I did not know it until God revealed it to me. God likes to move in mysterious ways, and we as God's people are called to give thanks. So if you see in your bulletin, I don't know if it's the bulletin or on the screen, but I have three points for us. Our passage calls us to give thanks for three things. We are to give thanks for faith, we are to give thanks for election, and we are to give thanks for the goodness of God. So the first point here, we are to give thanks for faith. Look again at verses 17 through 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So you've been working your way through Paul's epistle, his very wonderful, elaborate, deep epistle to the Romans. Last week, I listened to it, you heard Dan preach on Romans, the first half of Romans chapter 11. Our God saves was the point Dan made. You cannot out God's grace. I like that phrase. That was great, Dan, by the way. And so though many Jews who have hardened their hearts, God has actually preserved a remnant of elect Jews that have obtained God's grace. And you actually, we got to see Paul, a Jew, show his beautiful missionary heart toward all the Jews, because even though some have rejected Christ, some, by the grace of God, actually through the jealousy of the Gentiles, accepted Christ in faith. These first few verses, 17 through 24 of this passage, Paul uses the beauty of nature specifically olive trees, to communicate deep truths about God and his people. We see that God predestines or elects or pre-loves his people from before the foundation of the world. So what does that mean for the Jews? Well, the Jews, if you look in verse 17, they are the broken off branches. The Gentiles are the wild olive shoot that was grafted in. So don't miss the sovereignty of God, even in Paul's illustration here in our passage. Wild olive shoots never graft themselves in to the nourishing olive tree. 
The gardener does that. And Paul wastes no time applying what he's already written. He says, do not be arrogant. I have a six-year-old nephew who I love very much. He's a little guy. His name is Eddie. He's rambunctious. He's stuffed full of energy and of of confidence for a six-year-old. And when summers come around and I get to go visit, uh, my brother has a big trampoline, one of, the, one of the giant ones in his backyard. We'll be jumping on the trampoline together. And he gets all, all revved up and riled up, and he say, he'll say something like, I'm going to take you out, Uncle Mikey. I'm going to bring you down by the knees. I'm going to take you out, you know. And it's great. I love this little guy. And, but the reality is, any takedowns Eddie gets on me any advantage he has over to me is given to him, right? I, I, could, I could just stand there and he could be pulling on me. I wouldn't even move because he weighs like 34 pounds, you know? So any power, any control he has, any blessing he has from me is a gift. It's given to him. So you could say from Eddie's perspective, arrogance is foolishness. It's really not that different for the Gentiles, The Gentiles are like little six-year-old Eddie facing an adult on the trampoline. You didn't do anything. It's the root that supports you. You were some wild olive shoot before I found you and grafted you in. Arrogance is foolishness. Look at verses 20 through 21 again in your Bibles. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now here's the reason that the Jews were broken off. It was their unbelief. The natural branches are the Jews that have a millennia of history with God, yet God broke them off for their unbelief. This ought to shock you. When I was in high school, I took every uh, shop class that you could possibly take. I loved working on engines and cars and anything that moved or made noise. One of the classes I took was a small engines class where you were tasked with completely disassembling and then having to reassemble either a Briggs and Stratton or a Tecumseh small engine like you find in a lawnmower or a snowblower. It's a great class. You really learn how an engine works to some degree. But so you take this thing fully apart, you put it back together, and, and before you tried starting it, you would use this thing called a spark plug tester. You guys know what a spark plug testers are? A few, like three people. Um, they, they also make these for cars as well. If you're having car trouble, you can put them on a car. But so you, you put it on the top of the spark plug, and then you clip it to a metal bolt to ground it, and then you just pull the cord on the engine, and it arcs, and so you can actually test to see the coils making spark. I love engines. Sorry if I'm boring you. What my friends and I used to do, because I don't know why we used to do this, but we would challenge each other, who can put their finger on the spark plug tester for the longest number of pulls? And so, you know, that one guy would be like, another guy would be holding his finger as, as long as you could, and it would shock you. That's what this passage is to do to all of us. It ought to shock us a little bit. We read that God's people, the Jews, who've been loved and chosen and set apart for a thousand years, have been broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. And here's where we see the grace of God light up the sky like a firework. But you stand fast 
through faith. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, Paul also wrote, that uh, faith is a gift of God. It's not your own doing. And if grace is a gift, there is zero room for pride. Christians ought to have no spiritual pride. We ought to be the most humble people in all the earth. If that's the case, then surely the, the, the Gentiles would have been humble and kind to the fellow Jews, right? Well, probably not so. Historians will point out that although the Jews were protected by law in Rome from Gentile molestation, they suffered a great deal of ill will, sometimes faced outbreaks of violence. Why? Because the Jews refused to assimilate. They refused to abandon their own practices. They became unpopular. They were figures of amusement and hatred among the Gentiles. And this probably included some Christian Gentiles. So Paul writes to the church and says, do not treat them them, them this way. Do not become proud, but fear. The fear that that Paul writes about here is not like the fear that a servant would have to his master, one of, uh, like, fear of of punishment or being abused, but rather it's a childlike fear of a father. It's not concern for one's safety, it's reverent and respectful. This type of fear, the way Paul uses this, is the same way that the the writer of the book of Hebrews uses fear in Hebrews uh, 4.1. It's the same way Peter uses the word fear in 1 Peter 1.17. Imagine this. Imagine you're leaning back, even on one of these chairs, we have four legs, and you're putting all your weight on the two hind legs of the chair. You're effectively trusting that this chair will support you, that those two legs will bear you up. Well, when God's people reverently fear him and not become proud, it's as if we're leaning on the two hind legs of of God's sovereign grace, of his mercy to people who do not deserve it. Just a few points of application here for us this morning. The first, if you are a Christian, give thanks for your faith. I don't think we do this enough. I think we think, we're good at thanking God for a lot of things in life, right? Thank you for, thank you for the warm weather. Thank you that it's sunny, and I'm, I'm quick to thank God for the sun also. I do live in Wisconsin. Uh, but we seldom do we, or how often do we, actually thank God for the gift of faith. That we did not merit. We did not earn that. We have been grafted in. Most likely, most of us in this room are Gentiles who have been grafted in to the nourishing root of Christ. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here visiting, or, or maybe you've, um, you're just good at pretending and you've done this for a long time, you are being implicitly challenged, invited to trust in Christ in this passage. It's as if you've been given an invitation in the mail, and, the invita- and you open it up, and the invitation says something like this. You are cordially invited to believe in Christ and to be grafted in and share in the nourishing root who has taken every ounce of the wrath of God that was formerly aimed at you. With love, God. I think Paul would be encouraging you this morning. I, as a pastor, encourage you to think about the beautiful claims of Jesus and the truths of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for you and belief. Third and final point of application, we, God's people, are to worship God with reverence and fear. He did not spare the unbelieving Jews. He cut them off. 
Reverent worship remembers the severity as well as the kindness of God. We see that in our passage. And warnings like these in our passage are actually meant to take an axe to the root of our pride. To chop it off. It's as if they grab us by the hair, which you have a hard time doing with me, um, and lifting up our heads off of ourselves onto Christ in heaven. And to continue on, to press on in the faith. So, give thanks for your faith and worship God with reverence and fear. Paul continues and gives us more reason for thanksgiving. Their second point, give thanks for election. Let's reread verses 25 through 26, which, by the way, are without doubt the most uh, complex, difficult to understand verses in our passage. So, uh, bear with me as we try to work through them. Let me read them again. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Before we jump into kind of parsing this out a little bit, remember the context, right? Election. Election is the context. We, we, we saw this, we heard this rather, last week as Pastor Dan unpacked the first 16 verses of this chapter. The election of the remnant of Israel, as well as election of the, the remnant of the Gentiles. And this is important because it helps frame our understanding of what Paul means with, by all Israel, which we'll get to. He starts in verse 25. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. This is referring to the unbelief of many Jews from Jesus' day until the day he comes again. Right? There are many Jews who do not believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, from the time of his first coming to the time of his second coming. And it says, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Well, when, when is the until or what point is that? That's the point at which all of the Gentiles between the comings of Christ come in and believe. Okay? So the whole time period between comings, we have elect Jews also coming to saving faith in Christ, who are actually being drawn through envy of all things. Very interesting relationship we have between the Jews and the Gentiles. And we also have elect Gentiles coming to saving faith. So finally in verse 26 when it says, therefore all Israel will be saved, you could in parentheses, if you're reading in context, or in brackets rather, add in the words, all the elect remnant of Israel will be saved. This is not talking about every single Jew or every single Jew in the final generation of Jews. Rather, all of the elect remnant, as Paul has been unpacking for this whole chapter thus far. And notice also that parallels very nicely with the fullness of the Gentiles. So you have the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the elect Jews coming to saving faith through that deliverer, the Old Testament quote, who is Jesus. So now we can actually answer the question, well, what is this mystery Paul is talking about in this verse? By the way, every time you see the word mystery in the New Testament, there's maybe a half dozen uses of it or so, it's always something that was formerly unknown but now has been revealed by God. Okay, so it's not actually a mystery. Like, we don't really know what Paul's talking about here. Something that's like clandestine. We've got to like pull out our magnifying glass to figure it out. No, Paul, God has revealed it to us. So the mystery that Paul is talking about here is this unique relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews and how the Gentiles, like the Jews are broken off, Gentiles grafted in, now the Gentiles like make the Jews envy to come to saving. It's this unique relationship that the Jews and Gentiles have 
between the comings of Christ. Now, all of this, all of these confusing verses get at Paul's original question in the beginning of chapter 11. You remember what it was? Has God rejected his people? The answer? By no means. By no means has God rejected his people. All of the elect Israel will be saved through faith in Christ, just like all the elect Gentiles will be saved through faith in Christ. Jumping back to my introduction with Louis Zamperini, I would want to ask, has God rejected Louis? After all, he spent 47 days at sea, which has got to be some sort of record, only to then land as a POW in enemy territory. Man, that would be a downer of a day when you got captured by the Jews after 47 days at sea. Not the Jews, sorry. Uh, Japan, please forgive me. Context. Well, as you know, things continued uh, to go downhill for Louis, right? Not only was he captured and, and in a dungeon, but he also suffered uh, greatly by the hands of a Japanese colonel, Machihiro Watanabe, who was uh, known as, affectionately known as, The Bird, if you've read this book or if you've seen the movie. There was uh, one time... Louis was trying to be forced to give up some secrets for like a bombing site, like how they could, you know, uh, a part of the bombing mechanism on the airplane so they could actually guide where the bombs landed. Of course, Louis refused to do this. Another time they wanted Louis to go speak some anti-American propaganda on a video recording. Louis refused. So when he came home from this, the bird lined up every single prisoner of war and had him punch Louis in the face to teach him a lesson of respect. Many other horrible details you could read about in the book. It seemed to go on and on. But eventually, the Americans occupied Japan, and Louis and the other prisoners were liberated. When Louis went to look for the bird in his quarters to try to find him, probably to try to kill him at this point, once he found out they were freed, the bird had actually escaped, and he was gone, and he was never to be seen by Louis again. So had God rejected Louis? Well, by no means, right? God actually did uh, liberate him, which was not true for many of of, of the POWs. And God actually had greater things in store for Louis Zamperini. Were God's ways mysterious? Absolutely. Unbeknownst to Louis, God was getting ready to do something even more amazing in Louis' life. Zamperini was, in fact, an elect Gentile. But more on that. In a minute. Look at verses 28 through 29. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So Paul writes, the Jews were enemies of the Gentiles. Well, this is quite obviously because they tried to oppress and squeeze and squish the life out of Christianity when it first got going in the early years. But regarding election, with those promises that God made to Abraham and to his offspring, they were actually beloved children of God in the same way the Gentiles are. Look at verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I actually think election is something that we ought to give thanks for especially when we consider and we remember that we are all disobedient. 
And we remember that we are disobedient, that we are sinful, that all we bring to God is our sin. It's the only part of the deal that we come to the table with. All we have to offer him is our sin. We remember that, and we also realize that we are saved because of God's mercy that ought to lead to thanksgiving. The all here in this, just just to kind of flush out some potential heresy, or some false teaching. Uh, this is, again, I heard Dan talk about this last week. This is not teaching universalism, that every single person under the sun will be saved. The all here is an all without distinction, not an all without exception. It's a helpful distinction to make. So what I mean by that is, the all, all types of people are saved. There's no, there's no distinctions in terms of types of people. All Jews, in other words, and all elect, Gent- I'm sorry, all elect Jews and all elect Gentiles will be saved. All types of people. So that he would have mercy on all types of people. On every single person. If you try to read in every single person into this verse, it makes no sense and directly contradicts the whole rest of the teaching of the book of Romans. So clearly Paul is not going about it this way. Another word of application. Let the knowledge of your own sinfulness, of your own disobedience, drive you to thanksgiving for God's gracious election on your life. All you need to do for a moment is just start to think. I heard Dan talk about this. You don't have an accurate understanding of your heart last week, right? All you need to do is understand your heart, your own sinfulness, your waywardness, your proclivity to sin, your proneness to wander. Once we start to reflect on that and how little we have to offer God, then we start to actually give thanks for election. Then they are the doctrines of grace. And we can turn to God and say, thank you. Elsewhere in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love he predestined us to the praise of his glorious grace. Elect Jew and Gentile alike ought always to be praising God for his sovereign and merciful election. Because without it, there would be no hope. So it actually would be fitting if the only words we we, we mouthed or mentioned as we walked out these doors today would be, blessed be God. Thank you, God. Third and finally, the last few verses. Give thanks for the goodness of God. So in an appropriate conclusion to this whole chapter, and really probably to the whole first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, because now in the last four, starting next week in chapter 12, he's going to go move on to specific applications, right? So this is a lot of teaching in the first 11 chapters, things that are true in the gospel. In the next four chapters, he continues on to apply that and give you practical advice. Romans 12 is a great one. You should read ahead and be praying about that when you come next week. But so, as a fitting conclusion to the first 11 chapters, Paul breaks out what is essentially into a song of praise. God moves in mysterious ways. Can we fully understand it? Well, of course not. Do we always give thanks for it? Well, look at verse 33. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, we've got got to remember this as God's people. We will never be able to fully understand 
the ways and work and will of God. You will never be able to fully understand why God does what he does in your life. And I'm not even sure you're going to have that figured out when you get to heaven one day. Maybe you will. I'm not going to, be, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you you're going to have all the answers when you get to heaven. But I think one thing is clear from this passage. God is way smarter than we are, knows far more than we do, and who are we to expect to know what God is doing in this world? We only know what he's revealed to us and told us in his word. So just because we cannot always understand God's ways does not mean that we ought not to always praise him for his ways. We are called to praise God even when we cannot understand what he is doing. In verses 34 through 35, he quotes Isaiah and Job, and he asks three rhetorical questions. Here are the answers. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Who has been the Lord's counselor? No one. Who has put God in debt? No one. That's what Paul is doing in this, in this passage. For or because, in verse 36, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God made everything, sustains everything, and is the heir of everything. Or as one commentator put it, God is the source, the means, and the goal of all things. And it's important to note, I think, Paul is not just like stating facts about God. He's actually worshiping God in these verses. He's praising God for his wisdom in salvation. He's praising God for his knowledge and his mysterious working of all things because God is glorious and worthy of receiving all glory forever. Well, Louis Zamperini, along with many others, approximately 85% of Pacific POWs, as they were known as, had PTSD. The average Army Air Force POW lost 61 pounds in captivity, which is remarkable considering the average entry weight was 159 pounds. Every single night, Louis would have nightmares of the bird, or General Corporal Watanabe, standing over him with a belt, flicking it in his face and lashing out. He was drinking heavily. He was slipping in and out of flashbacks. He was screaming and clawing his ways through, uh, ways through nightmares every single night. Murdering the bird had become his secret fevered obsession. He had given his life over to it. He actually felt like God was toying with him. Uh, and he was very much angry at God. He forbid his wife Cynthia from going to church. They eventually had a child named her Sissy. And things were so bad between Louis and his wife, Cynthia, that um, she took their daughter, left their apartment, and filed for divorce. The second week of September, 1949, a tall, blonde-haired man stepped off the train in Los Angeles. His name was Billy Graham. He and his small team set up a 480-foot tent with 560 folding chairs in a parking lot on the corner of Washington Boulevard and Hill Street in Los Angeles. They held a press conference and announced their intention to have a three-week campaign to bring Los Angeles to Christ. Love that goal. Jacob's well should do that. I'm just kidding. Um, and guess what? After that, not a single newspaper story followed. When they started having their uh, nightly meetings, at first they were just half-filled. 
But by the end of the three weeks, they actually had extended their stay because they were having such a great turnout. Because nearly every single night, over 10,000 people were packing into this tent, standing in the aisles, and even on the street corners, just to hear Billy Graham speak. One night, while Louie and Cynthia were out for a walk, one of the neighbors mentioned to them, hey, have you heard this evangelist guy uh, who's been preaching in Los Angeles? His name is Billy Graham. Well, Cynthia told Louie that she wanted to go. He refused, so she went alone. She came back that night, and she told uh, her husband, Louie, that I'm actually not going to divorce you. And I've also had a spiritual awakening. Would you please come with me to hear Billy tomorrow night? He refused, actually for weeks, trying to hold out until this thing ended so he could just get through this period. Of course, she kept nagging, and he finally gave in and came. He was actually surprised by Billy Graham's appearance. He was neatly groomed and two years younger than Louis was. Billy Graham asked his listeners to turn to John 8. He read the passage and he began to speak on it and to preach. Louis went home that night enraged, not a Christian. Cynthia tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't have it. All night long, he lay helpless in his dream as the bird stood over him with the belt, lashing him in his face. In the morning when he woke up, Cynthia pleaded with Louis to come hear Billy just one more time And he finally gave in, clearly had to have been at work in that situation. I don't know why he would have given in again. So he comes, and he listens to Billy one more time. Near the end of the sermon, Billy was known for saying something like this. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Louis tried to leave. He stood up and walked out like the night before. Graham called out. He said, nobody leaving. You can leave while I'm preaching, but not now. Louis continued and pushed his way through the aisles. He felt violent. He wanted to hit someone. But then he had a flashback. He was on the raft in the ocean. He remembered the promise that he threw up at heaven and allowed himself to forget until just this instant. He prayed, if you will save me, I will serve you forever. It was the last flashback Louis would ever have. When they entered their apartment later that night, Louis went straight for the liquor cabinet, which normally he would turn to to get himself drunk. But this time, he carried all the bottles, went over to the kitchen sink, and emptied their contents down the drain. In the morning, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams, and the bird would actually never come again. Louis grabbed his Bible, went to the park to read. He felt profound peace. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make of him. In a single, silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation had fallen away. That morning, he was a new creation. Dear friends, God moves in mysterious ways, and we should always give thanks. Even when life hurts, Even when you cannot make sense of it and you don't understand it, give thanks because God is good and he does understand it. To him be glory forever. Let's give thanks to God this week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the mystery of your work in the Jews and the Gentiles. Thank you for your electing, sovereign, merciful grace that we do not deserve. 
May we trust you when we don't understand what you are doing in our lives. For you have demonstrated time and time again that you do know what you're doing. You are good and you do love your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.